All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. And if you're a new listener to the Romans commentary, a special welcome to you. The listener's commentary is a crowdfunded Bible teaching project that's made possible by the generosity of people like Kathy or Rebecca or Richard or Danielle or Gary and dozens of other people like that. So thank you so much for your generous support of the listener's commentary. In this session, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 17. And Romans 8 is all about life in the Spirit, that it is by the work of God through Christ and the Spirit that we have now been set free from the problem of sin, death, and condemnation that was unleashed on this world by Adam and that we are all complicit in. That's really what this chapter at the heart of it is all about. It's about life in the Spirit who now applies the work of God through Christ to our lives to set us free from sin, death, and condemnation. Let's trace the sequence of thoughts so far in the first few verses of Romans chapter 8. In uh, the beginning of chapter 8, around verse 2, Paul has said that the freedom from condemnation that we experience is because of the spirits liberating us from sin and death. And so we have been set free from sin and death. Then Paul goes on in verses 3 and 4 and says, This is because God condemned sin so that what the law always wanted, holiness, could be fulfilled in us who are now spirit people who walk by the Spirit. Then Paul goes on in verses 5 through 8, and he says, This freedom from sin, death, and condemnation is fulfilled in spirit people because their mind is set on God's spirit's things and is full of life and peace. While the mind of flesh people is hostile towards God, it's insubordinate to God, and thus it's full of death. And that's the sequence up through verse 8. And here we pick up in verse 9, and verse 9, the first half of it, picks up the, at that point and proclaims loud and clear that if you're a Christian, then you're not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. He says, in essence, and you guys are not flesh people, you're spirit people, you're in the Spirit. And once again, this is a crystal clear description of our identity. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9a, the first little bit of chapter 9. He says, however, statement of contrast, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed God's Spirit dwells in you. And the reason he says that is because he's just ended there in verse 8 that uh, the people in the flesh can't please God, that they're hostile to God, and thus they're full of death. And so, Verse 9a picks up and says, but you guys aren't that. You're not in the flesh. Notice how clear that is. This is one of those verses that makes it crystal clear that it's not a both and, it's an either or. You're not both in the flesh and in the spirit at the same time, and you have thus the struggle between these two warring identities within you. You're one or the other. You're in the flesh or you're in the spirit. And if you're in Christ and God's Spirit has come to dwell in you, then you're a spirit person. You're in the Spirit, which means you're not of the flesh or you're not in the flesh. That's not who you are anymore. This is a statement of what God has done and the identity he's given us in Christ. And so you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed God's Spirit dwells in you. So if you have the Spirit, then that's who you are. You're a spirit person. We, God's people in Christ, are spirit people. In fact, all of really verses uh, 
8, 1 through 11 are descriptions of who we are. This is our identity. The commands come later. They're, they're implied commands, right? Like spirit people set their minds on the things of the spirit. That implies a command, but it's not stated as a command. It's just a description of who we are and the way that plays out, right? We really don't get straightforward kind of imperatives until verses 12 through 13. And even there, it's almost descriptive of just what we do. Uh, and yet it implies very clearly a behavioral response on our part. And so we're talking about our identity. We're talking about who God has made us in Christ. So if you're in Christ and you have the Spirit of God, then you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. You're a spirit person. He goes on in verse 9 and he says, But if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. And so the Spirit is the mark of God's people. The Spirit is the mark of Messiah's people. And so if, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, then it doesn't matter what you say or what you believe, right? Like the mark is the Spirit, all right? And that's the key thing here. The Spirit is now the defining boundary for the people of God, not the Torah, the Old Testament law, not circumcision as under the Old Testament law, but the Spirit. That's the boundary marker. That's the mark of God's people is the Spirit. And notice here at the second half of verse 9 that the Spirit is uh, uh, called the Spirit of Christ. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. That's really helpful to us to notice because I think we can conceive of God as Father, Jesus, because he was a human being. We can picture that. We can read the stories. But the Spirit we struggle with to really grasp who the Spirit is, what the Spirit's like, and in some ways, he is the member of the Godhead, the member of the Trinity that doesn't have a face, right? Like, it's like, who is the Holy Spirit? And we tend to almost think of him as, you know, this power or this force within us. But this phrase, the Spirit of Christ, reminds us that the, the Holy Spirit is a person as much as Christ is a person. And that he has the same character and the same personality as Christ. He is the Spirit of Christ, after all, the Spirit of Messiah. And so he's personal. And he has the same character, the same desires, the same loves, the same hopes, the same goals, the same plans that Jesus has. He is the Spirit of Christ. And so uh, the Spirit has that personality, that character, the same that Christ does. And that's helpful to us so that we know the Spirit more as we walk with the Spirit. We're walking with a person who is of the same character and the same heart and the same personality as Jesus. So if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. Then in verse 10 and 11, he goes on to, and here's the implications of that. Here's what that means. Remember, spirit people set their minds on the things of the spirit, and they're full of life and peace. Well, he's going to really pick up some of that same idea here in verses 10 and 11 and help us understand that the spirit gives life because the spirit is life. All right. Listen to what he says in verse 10. He says, now, if Christ is in you, Christ or the Spirit of Christ, right? Like Paul can use these terms interchangeably because they're really uh, so unified as one Godhead in three persons that he can use them interchangeably. So Christ here is almost shorthand for the Spirit of Christ. So if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, 
let's work through that um, and just make sure we understand what Paul is saying here. When he says the body is dead because of sin, he means this physical body that's subject to physical death. And he's already talked about that, that the, the body is dying. Even though you've experienced phase one of our resurrection, this body is still subject to death, and it's subject to death just because of sin. All right, that's just we live in this fallen world, that's just the way it's going to be until we get our resurrected body. So even though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, that's one possible translation. The spirit is alive, and the spirit being referred to is our human spirit. That's possible. It's theologically fine, and it makes good sense. It just seems like in view of what's been said before and what he's about to say in verse 11, that it probably makes better sense to translate it straightforward as, yet the Spirit is life because of righteousness, and it refers to the Holy Spirit. So even though this body is, is dying because of sin, yet the Holy Spirit is life because of righteousness. That probably... Um, is what he's getting at here. It picks up the language of verse 1 of chapter 8 that refers to the, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. This is what he's been talking about all along, how the spirit is the spirit of life. The spirit gives life, right? Those who mind the spirit are full of life and peace. And in fact, in the immediate next verse, verse 11, the spirit is actually going to be uh, somehow involved in our resurrection as well. And so I think he's talking about not the human spirit is alive because of righteousness, but that the spirit is life. And so even though this body is subject to death because of sin, yet the spirit, the Holy Spirit, is life because of righteousness. And that phrase, because of righteousness, then probably refers to the righteousness of God that he's been talking about all along in Romans that was carried out in Christ, the saving justice that God achieved in and through the work of Jesus, which is now made available and effectual in our lives through the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit is going to bring life even to these dying mortal bodies um, because of what God has done, his saving justice, his righteousness in and through Christ. I think that's what he's getting at there in verse 10. That seems to be confirmed by then verse 11, where he goes on and says, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So if God's spirit um, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, notice that, that the Holy Spirit um, and God and Jesus are all mentioned there in the first half of verse 11. So we've got uh, all three members of the Trinity. So the Spirit of God and the God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Then he who raised Jesus from the dead, meaning God, who raised Jesus from the dead, will also, notice, give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Um, and so God the Father, God the Spirit, Jesus, all mentioned here, and because now we're in Jesus, and because God's Spirit is now in us, God himself then is actually going to resurrect our mortal bodies someday as well. Um, and so even though our bodies are mortal and dying because of sin, uh, God, through his Spirit, is going to give new life to those bodies, and he will resurrect us as well someday. One little technical note that 
doesn't make a massive difference in how we read verse 11, but I, I do think it's slightly important here when at the end he says that uh, God, who raised Jesus from the dead, will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. Gordon Fee, in his massive work on every passage about the Holy Spirit in Paul's writings, Gordon Fee was an expert in textual criticism, Gordon Fee contends that the other reading, the alternative reading, probably is the, the original reading, and that is because his spirit who dwells in you, not through his spirit who's in you. It's a very minor different difference in Greek, um, but it, it just changes the force of the, the phrase just a little bit. It doesn't matter a whole lot. Either way, it's, it's God's going to give life to your body because of some connection with the Holy Spirit. But I, I think that's really the idea. So if he is right, then it reads, give life to your mortal bodies because his spirit who dwells in you. And that seems to be the force even of the context that what Paul is saying is the spirit is life. And so you're going to get life in your mortal bodies because God has given you his spirit. And so the spirit is life in us and for us both now and into the future. And so he goes on then in verse 12 and says, okay, so what are the what are the practical implications of this? This is who you are. This is what God has done for you. How then do you respond to that? And that's what you get in verses 12 and 13. So notice what he says. He says in verse 12, he says, so then, therefore then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And so that idea of obligation is we owe nothing to the flesh. We're not of the flesh anymore. We're now of the Spirit. And thus, we owe nothing to the flesh. We don't have to listen to it. We don't have to take orders from it. And remember, in our discussion of flesh and spirit in Paul's writings and in Romans in particular, flesh has to do with both the fallen human world around us and since we you know, came out of that fallen human world, the fallen human tendencies that have been a part of us that we learned, we owe nothing to that. And we are not obligated to listen to it. So we don't have to live according to the flesh anymore. We're not obligated to live that way anymore. That's his point. Now, he breaks off his thought there and, and then he kind of extends kind of a reflection on it in verse 13 by saying, for if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. Like, that's just where the, the flesh leads, right? It leads to death. The mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. The, the flesh and death, they just go together. Fallen human ways of doing life, broken human ways of doing life, they're a dead-end street. They just lead to death. Uh, little death, big death, ultimate death, it's just tied up with death. So if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But, and here really is the implied imperative, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so life comes with the Spirit. Our responsibility is to put to death the deeds of the body by means of the Spirit. Doing that is an ongoing process. The language here implies that, that this is not something we do once and for all, all at once. It's something we do ongoingly, right? Like, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, this is just what we do on a regular, ongoing basis. We put to death the deeds of the body. And this really reminds us of Paul's earlier point in chapter 6, when he talked about the fact that we had died to sin, so we needed to live like that 
by how we rearranged our life, that we no longer presented the parts of our body as tools of unrighteousness, but instead we now present ourselves to God and the parts of our body as tools of righteousness. Well, here in chapter 8, verse 13, he lets us know that we're going to have the very help of God's Spirit to to do that, to rearrange our lives, to uh, change what we do with our body, to put to death the deeds of the body, and to uh, live now according to God's ways. Now, Paul uses similar imagery in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, where he tells us to put to death the things related to our earthly nature, our earthly fallen human nature, our fleshly nature. And again, here in chapter 8, he tells us, and you don't have to do that all by yourself. You and the Spirit work on this together. The Spirit is going to help you put to death the deeds of the body. N.T. Wright puts it like this. He says, Paul sees that there are styles of behavior that, like weeds left to go unchecked, have the capacity to take over the garden and choke out all the flowers. There's only one way with such things. They must be uprooted and killed off. And God's Spirit is now with us to help us do that very thing, to uproot those fallen uh, fleshly means of doing life and kill them off. Paul then goes on in verse 14 and following and says, and those who live this way, those who live by the Spirit this way and thus are led by the Spirit in this way, these are God's children. And since they're God's children, they are heirs. Listen to what he says in verse 14. He says, for, notice verse 14 picks up with for, which means it's logically connected to what he just said in verses 12 and 13. So for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. A couple notes, right? First off, notice the phrase led by the Spirit. This is one of the very few places that phrase shows up anywhere in the Bible, led by the Spirit. And notice what Paul says being led by the Spirit means, because it's directly connected to verses 12 and 13. To be led by the Spirit is to be putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. So often in popular Christian teaching and thinking, we've taken the idea of being led by the Spirit and associated it almost exclusively with like some sort of mystical guidance for life, like uh, being led by the Spirit means I'm getting promptings and nudges and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm hearing God lead me to do this or to do that. And I'm not saying God doesn't do that. God certainly can do, do that. And God sometimes does do that. That's just not what Paul means here by being led by the Spirit. What Paul means to be led by the Spirit in verse 14 is that you are living in partnership with the Spirit and putting to death the misdeeds of the body that you learned through years of living that way, living wrongly, right? Now, this, with the Spirit's help, you're putting it to death. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit here, is it means to be putting off sin and putting on holiness. And Paul says, those who are being led by the Spirit in this way, these are the sons of God. In other words, these are the children of God. Uh, the in the Greek language, when you're going to speak to a group of people, even if it's mixed gender, male and female, they would use the masculine, uh, the masculine form of the noun. And so you get the word sons here, but it means sons and daughters. It means you're God's children, all right? And then he goes on and, and says that the very spirit that we've received isn't a spirit of slavery. It's a spirit of Sonship. It's a spirit of family likeness. And so he says in verse 15, 4, you haven't received 
a spirit of slavery. The spirit of God is not a spirit of slavery. He didn't make us slaves, leading to fear again. But, he says, you have received a spirit of adoption. So the Holy Spirit in us is now a family spirit. It's a spirit of adoption. We've been adopted into God's family as his sons and his daughters. And so the Holy Spirit doesn't just mark us out as somehow belonging to God like a slave. It marks us out as belonging to God's as a child, as his son and as his daughter. So we've received the family spirit, the spirit of adoption. And so the spirit of adoption as sons, the spirit of adoption as daughters, as God's children, by which we cry out, Abba. Father. The word Abba is simply the Hebrew or Aramaic word, the language of the Jewish people that they spoke in their own homes. This was the language for a child to his or her dad, right? Uh, This is just what he would or she would call dad. From an early age, growing up into adulthood, they would just say dad, right? Or when they're really little, maybe daddy, as they got older, just became dad. It's the same language that you know, my adult children call me when they see me. Oh, hey, dad, how are you? Right. That's the language. So Abba is just the Jewish version of that. Father is just the Greek version of that. And so it doesn't matter whether you're from a a Jewish background or a Gentile background. doesn't matter who you are. You get to call God dad. You, the spirit within you, prompts within you, this intimacy with God, this family connection with God by which we now call God Dad, that's the idea there, verse 15. And so the Spirit unites us to God in a close-knit, loving union where we share this family identity with God and we get to call him Dad. And verse 16 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Uh, Real important there in verse 16 is to notice the word with. Not that the Spirit testifies to our spirit, again, as if somehow he convinces our spirit that we're children of God. He co-testifies. He testifies with our spirit. So our spirit is calling out, Abba, Father, and the Spirit is prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. So two together, our, uh, our spirit saying God is our dad, God's spirit prompting that very own heart cry in us that God is our dad. And so together, our spirit and God's spirit Uh, testify that God is our Father. And so we have two witnesses, uh, our spirit and God's spirit, testifying this. And so indeed, we really are God's very own children. This is a joint testimony of God's spirit and our spirit together, affirming that we belong to God as sons and daughters. And one of the things that means is if we're God's children, then we're also heirs. Look at verse 17. And if, if we are children, then also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So we're heirs of God himself. We're heirs of all that God has to offer. We're fellow heirs with Christ, meaning everything that Christ is going to inherit as God's son and heir to God's throne. We'll get to enjoy that as well as heirs. We are heirs. We get to look forward to all that God has promised to do for this world and restoring and renewing all things. We get to inherit that um, as God's children. We are assured of this glorious future inheritance because of God's spirit within us. And all of this is from God. All of this is from Christ. All of this is because of the spirit 
And so we get to share in all of this because of what God has done for us. And so if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we might also be glorified with them. And so the the inheritance is in the future, in the present. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be hardship, right? The road to glory travels through suffering. That's just because we live in a fallen, broken world. That's because we live in a world that's hostile to God and the things of God. That a world whose values and uh, aims are uh, against God or different from God's. And thus, there's going to be hardship. There's going to be hostility. There's going to be suffering. And so, uh, as we walk this road, it's not always going to be easy. Um, and suffering is part of the package deal of being a child of God, um, but it doesn't negate the fact that we're still fellow heirs and that we'll be glorified with Jesus someday. And so to wrap up this section, we need to bear in mind that the Christian life is life in and through and of the Spirit. It is made possible by the Spirit. We are united with God as his children because of the Spirit. We put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. The Christian life is life in the Spirit. And so as Kenneth Birding in his book on walking in the Spirit says, he writes, So in prayerful trust, and continual dependence upon the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we take action so that the sinful deeds of the body aren't given any life in us. We prepare ahead of time for the day of temptation through prayer, study in the Word of God, growth in faith. We carefully avoid places and situations which in which we would be tempted, and we stand firm in Christ or we flee temptation. And we do that as the situation requires with the aid and the help of the Spirit. It is walking by the Spirit. It is life in the Spirit by which we put to death the deeds of the body. And in this way, we're led by the Spirit of God, and we're marked out as the children of God, and we cry out to God as Abba, Father, through the Spirit.